Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in lovely Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good evening up in Beijing, where we're going quite regularly now, uh, Kobus, to uh, to none other than Jeremy Goldcorn. And for those of you who follow China studies or China politics in any kind, you this is a name you've inevitably come across either on Twitter, either on the blogs, or as a podcaster. Uh, Jeremy is the founder of Danwei.org, which is now, I think, Danwei.com, and also uh, a co-host with Kaiser Guo of the very, very popular Seneca podcast, which is an excellent show on Chinese current affairs. And he's probably the most opinionated guy that I know about China, which is why we're thrilled to have him on the show today. And most importantly, and most relevant for us, a South African native. So go figure. Welcome to the show, uh, Jeremy. Thank you very much, Eric. It's an honor to be here. Likewise to have you on the show. And we don't really have an agenda today. Normally, as our loyal listeners know, we kind of pick up on a on a particular news story and then kind of go with that. So tonight what we're going to do is do a free-form kind of discussion on all things kind of China and Africa and really try and, and provoke uh, Jeremy to give us some of his, uh, his more, his more those, those strident opinions that we hear on the podcast uh, with, with Kaiser. So let me just first give you a softball here. You know, you, you came in Beijing uh, and in 1995. Uh, I was, that's when I was there, too. I was an AP correspondent back in the day, you know, and those... Those early days, you know, the only Africans that you saw were in the friendship store. They were either diplomats or those kind of lone, lonely foreign exchange students. Um, in the 25-plus years since that time, you know, it's changed a lot. And let me just kind of get a little sense of how you think China's view of Africa in the 25-year stretch from when you've arrived to where they are today has, has evolved. And then we'll kind of go deeper into it. But just give us the broad strokes of what's happened with regards to the Chinese towards Africa. Well, I, I, you know, in some ways, I think China's gone back to the way it was um, before the reforming, uh, reform and opening up period when China saw in Africa, in African countries, a, uh, um, a, a place where they could seek uh similarly um i don't know what you know in south africa would say previously disadvantaged countries basically developing countries that might have a similar international agenda to china and back in mao Zedong's time obviously there was a revolutionary agenda and that subsided i mean you know the time i arrived in china in 95 same as you um there was uh, perhaps a lot less interest in Africa and a lot more interest in the U.S. and in Europe um, as developed countries. But as China began to get richer, you started to see China you know, uh, divert some of its attention, at least the government and companies, uh, towards Africa, where uh, companies saw economic opportunities and the government saw uh, essentially, I suppose, political opportunities. Um, and uh, that sort of all came to um, came to a head, came to uh, 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 prominence on the world stage in 2006 when China organized the uh, FOCAC, the Forum on China-Africa Co- Cooperation. It wasn't the first one, but it was the biggest one, and it was a huge event in Beijing. And from 2006, uh, I think you've seen uh, a very persistent and steady increase in interest of both the Chinese government and Chinese companies towards Africa. 
And it's very interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, one can understand some of the Chinese government's political motivations in Africa, um, shoring up international support for their positions, um, uh, making sure that they have plenty of UN votes, making sure that uh, China... Um, China's position on the world stage is backed up by a lot of other uh, a lot of other countries, and Africa has 53 of them. Um, but you've also seen China look at Africa as an economic opportunity, which to me is the most exciting thing about the China-Africa relationship. Is the sense that in China, when people look at Africa, maybe not ordinary people, but business people at least, they look at Africa as a market rather than as a, a place where you should send aid. Um, and do you do you feel that um, has is China does China still feel that they are of a sort with Africa that they are the kind of you know partners in development or you know kind of both developing countries or is China kind of moving ahead to uh, to uh, thinking of itself as more of a developed country uh, you know kind of like, where's where does China sit in that relationship with Africa if you compare you know, I, you kind know, of the late nineties to I now. Think- I think you have both um, attitudes. Um, I think there is, um, I mean, you know, for example, about, I guess, about six six months ago, the Global Times, the famous nationalistic newspaper of China, printed uh, a story about Africa and Chinese aid to Africa that had this kind of poor black man with his hand outreached and this large pale hand from the sky coming down, you know, giving the African man some money or some food. And the story was about Chinese aid and Chinese economic involvement in Africa. And, I mean, I think this is still very much a part of... There, there is a, a certain perception of China as being now a big, powerful country that is able to aid Africa. Um, and even if you look back to the, the construction of the Tanzan Railway, you know, Tanzania linking Dar es Salaam with, with Zambia, which allowed Zambia to avoid using apartheid South Africa's ports. I mean, even if you look back at those days, there was a certain perception of, of, of China being able to aid their poor or African brothers, you know, perhaps not so much as an equal, but as a... Uh, a more powerful country. And that is still very much a reality, I think. Um, so, I mean, it's not that China uh, sees African countries as complete equals. On the other hand, in, in, in their actual dealings with them, uh, you know, economic and political, I think it does uh, seem to be a much more um, sort of one-on-one, equal-to-equal approach to African countries when compared with Western Europe or the United States. Well, at least that's the official rhetoric, is that it's one-on-one, it's mutual benefit, um, you know, all this great flowery rhetoric that we're, you know, we were the victims of colonialism, you're the victims of colonialism, we're third world, you're third world, developing, developing, whatnot. But now, more and more, the research is coming out, and people across the continent are feeling like they're getting a raw deal here, that... The finance, the money, the labor, everything seems to benefit the Chinese side. And ultimately, the Chinese are exploiting Africa no more or worse than than any of the other foreign powers in the past. The Chinese themselves don't see it this way. And I'd like to get your worldview on this because when you look at what the Chinese, how they perceive what they've done in, say, Tibet or Xinjiang, you know, where they're bringing development, crushing culture, but at the same time bringing development, there's a real difference in worldview about what it means to, to, to kind of develop a country and to, to do aid and whatnot. So talk to me about that discrepancy that's out there between the Chinese perception 
and the, the, the attitudes on the other side? Well, I, yeah, I think there is a discrepancy. Um, I, I think that uh, um, on the one hand, I, I think you, you do have to acknowledge that so far the Chinese have not yet in Africa done anything that you could really say is colonialist or neo-colonialist. Um, uh, you know, they haven't actually made land grabs. Uh, but uh, certainly, I mean, the, uh, ch- Chinese companies and the Chinese government are in Africa for their own benefits. Uh, that is absolutely true. And I think that it's African countries' governments do not um, uh, see what is going on there will be a lot of troubles. If African governments do not stand up for their own people's legitimate interests, if they act as rent seekers and simply see the, the, the Chinese government and the Chinese Communist Party as a way to enrich themselves, nothing better will happen than happen under colonialism. And, you know, quite conceivably, it will be that. Um, but I don't think we've reached that stage yet uh, where you can say that. Um, and I do think it is very much up to African governments to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, in okay. China itself, um, I mean, you know, the, the comparisons with the Uyghurs, with Xinjiang, and with Tibet are in some ways relevant because, like that Global Times cartoon that I, I, I just mentioned, there is certainly a sense that, you know, China is, is benefiting Africa. Uh, in China, um, and that, uh, you know, this is something generous the Chinese government is doing, even though, I mean, there's probably not a single deal in, in the whole African continent that China's involved in that doesn't have some kind of political economic benefits to China. Jeremy, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, our, both of our home countries, South Africa, and how you see the relationship between the South African government and the Chinese government, or then maybe particularly between the Chinese Communist Party and the African National Congress. Um, you know, kind of well, like, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, kind of just, just expand on that a little bit. So I, I think that, um, you know, the, the, the party-to-party relations uh, between the ANC and the Chinese Communist Party are um, and quite uh, very strong. Uh, what I, I don't like about it um, is that it's all very opaque. Um, it's not the South African government, so we don't actually know what goes on in, in these exchanges. And they seem to be becoming quite intimate. Um, you know, there have been media reports recently that the Chinese government is going to uh, fund the construction of an ANC sort of party school, something along the lines of the Communist Party school um, somewhere uh, in Gauteng, in, in uh, my home province. Um, and uh, in, in the last few years, I have seen, sometimes with my own eyes, um, you know, numbers of ANC delegations coming to China on some kind of junk, um, which seems to involve, you know, meetings with the Communist Party and then a lot of shopping at Silk Street in Beijing to buy, you know, knockoff brand names. Um, and I don't think this is a particularly healthy relationship uh, for South Africa because I don't think that what the ANC will learn from the Communist Party is necessarily what the rest of the citizens of South Africa would like our, our, our government to be learning. But I guess that question of the healthy relationship, none other than Jacob Zuma himself has said that it's not sustainable 
uh, the, you know, he, I don't think he was talking about it in the context of South Africa, ironically, but he was saying the Sino-African relationship as a whole is not sustainable given the trade balances and, and more and more the debt that's piling up. And so while China says it's not a colonial country, it's, it's not a neo-colonial power, it's not an imperial power because it's never been that way in its history, um, it has been a tributary power. Uh, I'm sitting here in Vietnam, which is a country that China ruled for a thousand years. Uh, and what we're seeing in, China, in Africa in many ways is the establishment of tributary states. And I would be interested to hear your response on that. Well, I think there's, there's certainly some truth to that. Um, uh, and um, I mean, I, I think that, you know, China is, uh, is a very practical actor in 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 many ways and particularly when it comes to foreign policy with countries that don't affect its its, its immediate neighborhood so uh what china wants out of africa is very clear um uh its natural resources its markets um and its uh, uh anything that can be extracted of value and uh, I mean, African governments need to be very, very clear on that. I mean, the Chinese have no philanthropic or uh, uh, they have no agenda of improving Africa. Um, and I think that's both good and bad. I mean, I think the good side of it is um, possibly, you know, um, I mean, if you refer to like Dimbi Samoya's like dead aid, China's not going to do that. You know, they're not going to pile in aid with humanitarian or human rights objectives that may not meet local circumstances. Um, and uh, in some ways, that's, that's a good thing. Um, but on the other hand, everything they do in Africa is going to be with a very particular commercial or political objective. Um, and uh, that means that African governments, uh, they have to be able to look after their own land and their own people and their own money. And if they're not sharp about it, they will get into trouble with China, just like they have in the past with the West, because China's not there for the benefits of Africans. China's there for the benefit of China, the Chinese government. As is all countries, for the most part, who are anywhere around the world, you know, foreign policy and foreign are, is, is, is a self-interested game if you're a realist. Um, hey, Kobus, I want to ask you... Yes, I, I think that's true. I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, and in China, maybe the refreshing thing is that it's, that is perhaps more honest. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's any different from anywhere else. Hey, Kobus, I'd like to ask you a quick question about perceptions of China. You were saying in your class that you're teaching on China-Africa right now, there is this kind of murkiness that's out there in terms of who the Chinese are. And there's this kind of now sense that the Chinese are almost at the same as, say, a European, a Japanese, or a Western, uh, or an American, for that matter. What, what, tell us a little bit about the, the perceptions that your students have, and then I'd like to contrast that with what Jeremy thinks are the biggest misperceptions of China. There is that, um, you know, kind of there is a certain certain assumption that China is just simply rich, um, you know, richer than Africa, and that China has, for that reason, 
is being slotted into the kind of responsibilities of the rich world in relation to Africa. So China should, for example, help Africa to develop its wildlife governance, for example. Or China, China should you know, kind of help you know, African governments to build capacity to, to have more efficient bureaucracies. Or, you know, the, those kind of, those kind of um, points of criticism. Um, on the other hand, I think also China is frequently this kind of negative space where the, it's difficult for people to really distinguish between Chinese companies and Chinese governments and Chinese migrants. Um, so frequently China is this kind of other you know, um, so it kind of moves back and forth between those two, you know, kind of where on the one hand, sometimes people are resentful that China isn't helping more. And on the other hand, they're kind of unsure about what China is and what they should do. Okay, uh, Jeremy, let me throw it to you now. What do you think are the biggest misperceptions about China from those who are on the outside and you're obviously on the inside? Cool. That's, that's a, I mean, I think in the context of Africa, that's quite a difficult question to answer, you know, in a way, because it's, you know, I mean, if you ask me, like, the mis- misperceptions of China in America and Europe, um, I, I think it's, it's quite clear, because China isn't really um, affecting the average European or American um, in their day-to-day lives. You know, there may be fears about China, but it's not really something that is affecting their day-to-day lives in quite the same way as it might start to be happening in Africa, where you have Chinese-run stores in even the most remote villages and, you know, anywhere from South Africa to Nigeria to to Central African Republic. Um, And you, you start to have people who are kind of rubbing up against China and Chinese people every day. Uh, yeah, it, but let me just, if I, can I maybe just stop you there? I mean, Americans may yeah. not appreciate the Chinese, but at the same time, they love buying all the crap at Walmart that's made in China that's kept inflation down. They they certainly like getting mortgages very cheap with, you know, fueled on Chinese, you know, loan, you know, money going into the U.S. Treasury that keeps interest rates down. So they may not appreciate it, but they're rubbing up against the Chinese in all sorts of different ways, aren't they? That's true, but I mean, I think maybe the same is is the case in Africa. I mean, in you know, certainly South Africa, which is the African country that I've visited most in the last few years. I mean, you pretty much can't go anywhere without seeing, if not a China store, as they call them, then uh, maybe like a, a street vendor selling umbrellas or, or windscreen wipers or whatever at, uh, at a, a traffic light intersection in Johannesburg, and all the stuff comes from a Chinese uh, uh, vendor, ultimately, even if it's not a Chinese guy selling it on the street. I mean, I, I think you do, I mean, I think Africa is rubbing up against China in, in, in similar ways to the United States. Go ahead, Kobus. And I think also in- increasingly, um, China is Chinese investment is starting to shape the the skyline in Africa. So, for example, in the financial district in Johannesburg, Sino Steel put up this massive tower block, you know, which essentially now dominates the you know kind of that that part of the, the Johannesburg skyline. So I think you know kind of in 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 microwaves and macroways, you know, kind of it's really shaping shaping daily kind of interactions more and more in Africa. I think maybe more than in the US. So I tend to agree. Yeah. Let me get your sense on two of the most sensitive issues in Sino-African relations. Uh, let's start with Ivory. 
Um, there's nothing that riles up the West more than watching the, the destruction of the rhino population, the elephant population, and what seems to be from the outside looking in, indifference on the part of the Chinese to this. Uh, in fact, you have senior wildlife officials in Beijing saying, you know what, this ain't our problem. At the same time, Li Keqiang goes to, to, to Kenya. He donates $10 million. CCTV Africa does this kind of vanity website with the UNEP. Uh, so at the same time, there's this kind of fig leaf, but they're really not willing to put any political capital behind stopping the demand and enforcing their customs to stop the flow of ivory in, into China. If, do you have any sense of how the Chinese, the political system regards this issue because it is such an emotional third rail, uh, both in Africa and in the West, that we just don't understand why the Chinese don't take more action and the public relations victory that it would, that it would gain from this would be huge. What's your, any thoughts on Ivory? Well, I think there are a few things. I mean, I think the one bright spot is that Yao Ming, the you know, outsized Chinese basketball player, who is a you know a, a, a homegrown hero uh, in China uh, and really you know one of the biggest celebrities has thrown his weight behind uh, a world wildlife campaign against uh, using endangered animals for food or for luxury or other things and I don't think this is really hit with rhino and and uh, rhino horn and ivory elephant ivory yet. Uh, but it certainly, I think it has made a difference with, with shark fin uh, soup, uh, which is a luxury sort of uh, uh, gourmet item that used to be in China. And is, uh, it, it does seem, from my reading at least, and a little bit of anecdotal evidence, it does seem that Yao Ming's campaign has started to make an effect. Um, but that is, uh, you know, one uh, civilian, one citizen. Yeah. Uh, I don't think the Chinese government has thrown their weight behind... Um, any kind of uh, campaign to reduce poaching of endangered wildlife in Africa, despite uh, Li Keqiang's, um, you know, donation or whatever. I, I think that it's not really seen as something that is a, uh, you know, a priority of the Chinese government. And as far as the PR angle goes, you know, I, I mean, one thing China, whatever you say about it, that it's very, very bad at is, is, is PR. I mean, the, the Communist Party has a wooden ear, um, and they really, really have no clue how to make themselves seem uh, more lovable to the rest of the world. And this would actually be quite an easy, easy thing oh, for them to score. Be huge. You know, it would it be could huge. make a very big difference uh, to the demand for uh, rhino horn and, and elephant uh, ivory yeah. in Africa. It could make a huge difference. But I don't think they see it. Um, I don't think they see that. You know, um, for all the money they're spending on CCTV Africa to build soft power, in, you know, on the continent, one simple policy move could achieve way more. It could achieve way more. But, you know, you, you also think that, I mean, if they stopped all of their funding for CCTV Africa and put all of that money into, like, making Air China serve, like, good Chinese food, you know, I, I think their, their soft policy <laughs> aims would be... Um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, they, they would achieve a lot more than they are currently, and they won't do that. Um, <laughs> so, I, I, you know, I, I think there's a, a certain, I mean, there's a, a very obvious weakness in the Chinese government. They don't really see, they don't get PR. And 
this sadly is one of those things that they don't get. And I think that in China itself, it's, I mean, it is a, it's a difficult thing culturally because um, this idea of using bits of, you know, rare animals for medicine or aphrodisiacs or for, um, you know, status, it, it's very, very firmly entrenched. And it's very, very difficult to get, um, get any kind of change of, of heart on this, this topic. Yeah, you know, kind of my feeling is that it, that it's it's similar to one of the why it's so difficult to really tackle corruption in South Africa, is because it's so closely linked to to popular ideas of what it means to now not be enslaved anymore. You know, kind of it it, it attacks ideas of you know attacking luxury attacks also ideas of success you know and, and my, my feeling is that, that there's a similar kind of theme similar problem going on in china you know kind of these are markers of success and in, in, in a sense you're attacking success itself you know once you you know once you start attacking you know kind of rare, rare animal products yeah but it just goes to show that everybody's talking past each other i mean this there's no the the communication just isn't landing where it should be on you know and, and we've we've been talking about how on so in Chinese social media how there is a generational change that seems to be happening that younger people just don't think ivory's cool anymore um, it's just kind of that's what old people do and 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 so time may be on the side of, of of ivory but at the same time the elephants just don't have the time because the killing is just going so much and you just you kind of hope and everybody's hoping that the chinese will take some kind of action but i'm not sure they will let me uh, go to another sensitive issue and then that's race um you know a couple years ago there was uh, some disturbances in guangzhou where you know what they call chalkadicheng which is uh you know chocolate city and, and the chinese themselves are not really well known for being racially tolerant and in, in part because they don't have a whole lot of experience with minorities. They don't have a lot of experience with diversity and cult- multiculturalism. And so one of the things that we that you see, and Howard French clearly made this point in his book, it's something that you and I both know from living and working and being around Chinese people, is that when it comes to black Africans, um, there's not always the most open-minded views that come out. Um, and I'm being very polite here. And then specifically in places like Guangzhou, you know, there's a lot of hostility and a lot of uh, stereotypes. What Talk to us a little bit about how Chinese look at race, in particular uh, Africans. Well, it's, 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 it, you know, it's a weird conversation to have uh, uh, sort of in English and in a, a, a Western context, in a way, because I, I find that uh, Chinese attitudes to race in some ways are, I mean, um, very sort of... Um, uh, how to put it politely? Uh, you don't have to um, be polite. You really very don't. Politically correct. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> people can be extremely racist here. Um, and uh, as a white South African, you know, equivalent, you may have experiences too here, where if you tell a taxi driver you're from South Africa, you know, the first reaction is, oh, but you're a little pale. And then, you know, maybe a third of the time, maybe a half of the time. Uh, uh, the second follow-up question is, or, or, or response is like, oh, but, you know, black people are screwed up in some way or another, and, you know, when you white people rule the country, it was okay, or, you know, some kind of racist comment. Um, but uh, I think there's also, um, how to put it, uh, it, I think in China, it's what I call a naive racism, 
Um, people don't have a lot of experience with other races, white or black or other brown or yellow or, you know, uh, people, most Chinese people don't have a lot of experience with people from other countries. Um, and it's somehow a more open-minded racism, if, if you can allow such a convoluted turn of phrase, in the sense that um, uh, I, I, people are a little bit more willing to believe whatever comes. Um, so they might initially have a very hostile response to black people, but if there's like if they're doing business together or something like that, I think often it ends up being uh, a relationship between black and yellow that is perhaps less vexed than you might have between black and European white. Um, uh, but uh, on a sort of day-to-day -day level, you know, on the streets, uh, in the subway, um, when it comes to landlords who may uh, have sort of ideas about the race of their preferred tenant if they're a foreigner, um, China does remain actually quite racist. Yeah, I mean, my, you know, I, I have to say I experienced a lot of the same issues in Japan um, when I when I lived there, um, and there it was. But in Japan, it was mostly against all foreigners. You know, it's not necessarily against against like Africans, but against pretty much everyone. Um, although there was this kind of betting order. I wonder if, um, you know, if the the sensitivity towards racism um, in in the West is also a kind of a symptom of how how embedded racism is in Western culture. So in a way, you know, kind of the, the, the kind of naivety about race and the, the kind of unreflective racism or naive way of just expressing whatever racist thing you're thinking is in, in China is in a way also shows how, how China was not really embedded in these colonial, you know, structures. The West, you know, has, has, has learned to hide itself, you know, to hide these, this history much more because there was much more to hide. I don't know, maybe that's, that's a much too kind of optimistic reading. No, I, I, I think that's kind of what I was trying to say, Clovis. I mean, I, I think that's true. I, that, that's what I mean in a way by naive racism, in the sense that I think that the racism um, uh, against black people in China right now is uh, very much just, a, you know, uh, these people look weird and we don't know who they are. But it's, it's, it's not based on several centuries of interaction where the one side was clearly inferior and was being basically, you know, beaten for years and years. There's a, a sort of a newness to the whole relationship that I think does cast everything in a different light. Um, it's, um, it's much more, um, how to put it, uh, these are difficult questions to, to, to talk about, so I'm sorry if I'm... No, uh, no, 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 I mean, these, are, these are literally um, the most complicated issues we're tackling, so it, it's, that the words don't come easily is, is, is to be expected. Okay, well, thank you. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, on a day-to-day on -day street level, China can be pretty racist, but um, I don't think there are the long-held expectations and... Um, uh, prejudices that we have in the West uh, towards Africa here. And I think people can be a lot more, people on an individual level or even the government can be a lot more receptive to um, African concerns than perhaps Westerners typically are. 
So it's, it's, it's very tricky. But it's also this thing that this is really the first generation of Chinese that are engaging Africa on a mass scale. So it's not surprising because they are making the first contact that you have a whole wave of people who've, again, never lived abroad in many cases. They've never worked with other people in different languages, different cultures, different races. So what I keep an eye on, and this is something that I focus on in the, in the U.S., is when we talk about immigrants in the U.S., you say, well, the assimilation question is very difficult for the first generation, but keep your eye on the second generation, and it's a whole different ballgame. And there's a whole lot of research that's coming out in Africa of the second generation of uh, of Chinese that are starting to be born there now. For the This is the first, you know, they, they came 15, 20 years ago, some of the first Chinese migrants, and now they're having children. And those children are going to be... You know, what are they? Are they Chinese? Are they Zambian? Are they South African? Are they a little bit of, of everything? And that's going to change the, the, the racial kind of discussion, I think, a lot as well as the question of migration. Yeah, I think that is a very interesting question. I mean, you, you mentioned Howard French uh, previously, and I think in his, his recent book, there's a, a bit about the guy, a Chinese guy in Mozambique, who basically, you know, hooks up his son with a, a Mozambican wife and basically decides he wants to become a Mozambican. Um, I think you're going to see, you know, a fairly different dynamic when some of these younger Chinese people who were born or grew up in, in African countries uh, come of age. You know, I've got two South Africans here on the line, so I'm going to kind of wrap up the show with, you know, two different outlooks here. So, Kobus, I want you to give me kind of your five-year projection of where you see the, the Sino-African relationship going, particularly either the Sino-African or Sino-South African, whichever you feel more comfortable talking about. And, and then we'll compare that with uh, where Jeremy sees it going. Yeah, I think probably mine will be Sino-Sub-Saharan, I would guess. Um, I think wider and deeper. Um, I think it's gonna, there's going to be more the different kinds of engagement on many more levels. Um, and I think the, the engagement is going to go even deeper. And I think the engagement that we're really going to be seeing now is, is uh, a very strong influence of Chinese political culture on African political culture. And that might have both positive and negative impacts. I think. Jer- Jeremy, where do you see it going in the next five years? I, I, I wouldn't, uh, I would uh, agree with, with, with Corbett, uh, I think. I mean, um, I, I think it definitely the engagement is going to increase. Um, investment is going to increase. Um, and I think uh, concomitant with that will be an increase in tensions um, because, uh, you know, China is increasingly going to be seen as, like the West, as a big, rich country that may be exploiting Africa. Um, and I, I think that the honeymoon is probably just about over about now in terms of China-Africa, and you're going to see more and more sort of complaints about Chinese behavior in Africa at least in the media uh, and from from ordinary people, if not from African governments. Um, and um, I, I, I think we're going to kind of see more of the same. I don't think there's going to be a big change. I think uh, engagement will increase, investment will increase. There will be more and more boosters of the China-Africa relationship in Africa itself. Um, but I think you're also going to see a growing sort of popular... Um, uh, uh, sort of discontent uh, with China. And one of the things I think maybe the most interesting challenge for the Chinese government is going to be that I, I think that the, the entities that are going to cause problems for China and Africa are not going to be Chinese government or Chinese Communist Party initiatives so much as private sector initi- initiatives, uh, factories uh, or mines 
where African workers are not treated very well. And you're going to see um, more and more incidents of, 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 you know, problems coming out of, of, of this kind of thing. Um, so I think China is going to have some very interesting problems to deal with in Africa in the next five years. Well, that's... Um, and they're not going to be very pleasant. Well, you know, Kobus, the good news on that front is it'll give us a lot to talk about for the next five years. So I think we'll be in business <laughs> for a while. Have, yeah, I think you're in business for the next <laughs> five years. Awesome. No so it ain't going to be relationship is, is going to just get more and more interesting. It ain't going to be boring. And that's uh, hey, listen, uh, Jeremy. Thank you so much for staying up with us this evening. We really appreciate it. You know, you are uh, one of the most interesting people to follow into when it comes to understanding China, both, you know, obviously China, Africa, but at the same time, mostly Chinese politics, Chinese media. There are so many different ways that people can kind of stay in touch with what you're doing. What Give us a few of ways that they can follow what you're reading and writing. Well, I'm on Twitter, uh, at Goldcorn with a K, which is my surname. Uh, and I do a podcast called Sonica, uh, which is basically weekly uh, at uh, popupchinese.com slash Sonica. And... Uh, Sometimes now, I mean, my my website, Dunway, uh, we're now part of the Financial Times and we sort of uh, are kind of capitalist tools, essentially, but we do occasionally publish interesting things on Dunway.com. Nice. And we are Chinophile brothers now, so Seneca can be found on Chinophile's website alongside the China Africa Project. Unfortunately, uh, you behind... Which is excellent. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, really, we've just gotten so much great feedback from it. And, and so for our listeners who are both are not familiar with both Seneca, with Kaiser Guo, and Jeremy, as well as China File, you put those two kind of resources together and you'll be on top of almost everything that's going on in China from some of the smartest people that are out there. So I highly recommend that, that, that combination. Um, also, you being behind the Great Firewall do not have access to Facebook, but uh, we're now at almost a quarter of a million followers on the China Africa Project Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Isn't that amazing? A quarter of a million. And by the way, about 80% of our followers are under the age of uh, 30, and then most of that is under the age of 24. And I just think wow. that is fantastic that there's so many young people interested in this topic. So um, so we invite everybody, those of you you know who can jump the firewall in China, uh, please do, and join us on the conversation. We'd like to have more Chinese voices participate. Uh, we're also on Twitter. Kobus, where can people find you? They can find me at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And I'm on Twitter at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China in Africa headlines almost every day. And, of course, if you want to follow this podcast, uh, we're on Stitcher, we're on SoundCloud, we're on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa. But the best way is over on iTunes. And if you could just give us a rating or a little bit of a review, it helps us kind of be more discoverable in the iTunes ecosystem. So... Until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.